0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news.
0: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com.
1: It is time now to get to our next guest, uh, currency guest. But one of the best, because he used to cover emerging market currencies. Now he covers everything, and he really just knows everything about everything. Wynn Thin of Brown Brothers Harriman, thanks for joining us today.
0: Hi, Bonnie. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: So, Wynn, you know, I'd love to talk about emerging market currencies, but I do want to ask you first about this spat, which is really more than a spat. I shouldn't call it a spat between the U.S. and China. It's amping up again, President Trump, you know, throwing in a threat. Perhaps it's to distract from other things. Perhaps it's for real, as they say. How are you reading it, and will it affect the dollar longer term?
0: Well, as you know, the markets have been struggling with this U.S.-China struggle really for, for several years now, right? It started off with the trade war. Uh, now it's turned into, you know, something I think even deeper and stu- structurally more profound. You know, I think regardless of who the next president is, I think the U.S.-China relations have, uh, will, you know, have, have changed um, forever. I mean, if you look at the polls, um, voters in, in the U.S. across party lines, both Democrats and Republicans, all favor taking a tougher line against China, uh, against his perceived infractions, et cetera. So whether it's Mr. Biden or whether it's Mr. Trump, um, you know, both administrations I think will continue on this tough line with China.
1: Yeah, and what will that do to the US dollar? Because we definitely saw you know, big weakening in the dollar last week. It wasn't just on the China news, but you know, it was 92 and change on DXY. We've strengthened it a little bit again. Will there be any impact even if this continues?
0: Well, what we saw back uh, last year was, uh, you know, during when the trade war erupted and, and really got tense, the dollar tend to strengthen, especially against emerging markets, right? Because it's not just China. It's all the countries in sort of the wider China orbit. Um, you know, China imports uh, commodities, et cetera, from other countries. So it's it's really, you know, part of it's, you know, sort of a, a big cog cog in the whole global trading regime. So uh, to me, that's the risk um, that, you know, a, a – um, I guess a prolonged or renewed tension in U.S., China will aid two things, probably boost the dollar for safe haven and most likely um, put down the pressure on equities. You know, we saw that last year. I think that sort of dynamic would take place. Now, what's interesting to me is that, you know, Mr. Trump has sort of kind of eased off that a little bit. Um, and but now I think, as you pointed out, you know, we're going into prime election season and he seems to be trying to find some sort of message that's going to resonate with voters um, myself, personally, I, I look at the polls and, and see that most voters at this point are really, really most worried about the pandemic and the domestic economy. China seems a little bit lower on the list. And so, so I, I do suspect this, this, this will not get that much traction. And uh, Mr. Trump may go on to the next message.
1: So if we don't have to worry so much about the dollar, where are you looking around for value in currencies? We saw the... Uh, GBPUSD weakened today a little bit, sterling trading at 130.26, but it had been strengthening, so there's that. We have the Canadian dollar almost at 132 right now, and the yen below 106. So there's definitely movement out there, When, but where are you finding the the, the most bang for your buck,
0: literally? Yeah, so, Ivani, I'm glad you brought that up, because it's something that, that myself and I think a few other analysts have been talking about, is that, you know, in the past, you could talk about interest rate differentials as as a big driver Currencies, And that's just no longer the case. we have got zero rates basically across developed markets and even across many emerging markets. So instead of of the carry and sort of the interest rate differentials, I think investors are are focusing really purely on the fundamentals and and relative economic growth potential and and differentials. So where does that put us? Well, you know, I've been, as you probably know, I've been pretty negative on the dollar in Q3 just because we've really, I think, mishandled this virus. Uh, It's been much worse than it had to be. And I think the U.S. economy has been underperforming. But what we're seeing around the world now is that those countries that started to reopen are having trouble, right? We're seeing problems in, in Italy, France, Germany, in Asia. So it's, it's sort of a, almost a, a moving target. Like who's you – know, what's, what's looking worse right now? Um, so I remain negative on the U.S. dollar near term. We've got to get these virus numbers under control. Um, you know, I think China's a good story. They, you know, of all these other countries around the world, it, it seems to have done the best – in, in really keeping the virus numbers down. So China, emerging Asia, I think, hold the best value right now in terms of you know, relative fundamentals and relative growth. Latin America is, in, is just like you have in the U.S., just we're struggling with the virus, struggling to, to keep economic growth. Um, so it's really, I think, for a fundamental person like myself, you know, fundamentally focused uh, investors and analysts, this is really where it becomes important. And, and I think that we really have to pay attention here.
1: Yeah, so obviously we're in a coronavirus era. And so you're saying that until that era is over, you would look at certain countries very differently than you might if we were not in a coronavirus era, such as emerging Asia and parts of Latin America, not, not all of Latin America. But does that mean, for example, that you would consider, you know, currencies where you wouldn't normally and I say normally pre-pandemic and post-pandemic invest?
0: Yes. I mean, I think what, you know, I think that, the, for instance, uh, we've always seen um, in emerging markets, you know, a lot of these high-carry countries, sort of uh, Brazil, Turkey, um, you know, South Africa, they've tended to to gain during risk-on uh, training, but now, you know, again, with, with basically zero rates, there's no cushion there. There's no yield or carry to, to attract um, uh, investment flows to these countries, which to me have arguably amongst the worst fundamentals. So it, within EM, it's, it's fascinating to me that there's such a um, divergence in, in performance, um, even during this sort of risk-on um, environment we really saw in the last several months. So again, I, I would just again caution investors to to really not buy things sort of wholesale. That is, you know, look look differentiate. Look at the diverging fundamentals. Uh, you know, within asset classes. And that's, that's very important to, to remember as you go into Q4. Where,
1: where do you like in emerging Asia?
0: I think um, Singapore, Korea, uh, China, you know, they, again, these countries, you know, they're still struggling, obviously, to, to maintain low virus numbers. They've done a fantastic job. Um, and without having to shut down the economy uh, as, as, as uh, deeply as we have elsewhere in Europe and here in, in, in North America. So uh, Taiwan, I would throw in that as well. You know, again, the China story is solid, and it's going to bring up a lot of these other, other regional economies as well. Um, you know, it's, it's not perfect. You know, China has its issues. You know, I think, as, you, as we've been talking about, this, this issue with the U.S. could flare up and could harm sentiment. But for now, I think investors are pretty comfortable with the China recovery story. Mm-hmm. You look at PMI numbers, you look at the export numbers. Uh, China, just as they led the sort of the world downward during this coronavirus, they're leading the world upward in the recovery. And again, it's, I think we all have to focus on which countries have done the best in, in limiting the, the pandemic impact. You know, another reason I'm negative on the U.S. is we still can't get another stimulus bill passed. Yeah. And I think it's very crucial. And, you know, I, I would have thought we've had something in the, in the bank, bank by now. But um, yeah. nothing I mean, it's unreal so that it's, it's 56
1: ends. days to the election and we still have nothing. Very briefly, um, Sterling, why is it not reacting more? Are investors not taking the possibility of a, a, a worse Brexit seriously?
0: Yeah, so what, look, it did, we, we have seen uh, Sterling uh, be the, the worst performer today, and I think over the last week, it's pretty clear that, that, the, that the odds of, of a, a no-deal Brexit are, are rising. They're higher than I think many had expected. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Johnson, as you know, through a monkey wrench into the works by saying he may just yeah. throw out parts of the you know, withdrawal him, which is against, I, think, I believe, against international law. Uh, so it's just, to me, it's a, a big mess. Um, I think what most people are comfortable with, it's not going to be a huge sort mm-hmm. of um, global uh, um, catastrophe. I think most agents have, have sort of prepared for this. Yes. Um, and, and so the impact will not be huge globally, but okay. sterling it's, it's pretty negative.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Wynne, thank you so much. That's Wynne Thin of Brown Brothers Harriman. So much appreciated. That's a serious story that Greg Jarrett just told us about. J.P. Morgan issuing about 280,000 loans in the PPP. Those loans total more than $29 billion, with a B. So J.P. Morgan was the top PPP lender in the country, according to SBA data. And if it's now looking into instances, we don't know how many... In which COVID relief funds were misused by customers, and as probing employees' involvement in the illegal activities, you can be sure we'll hear a lot, lot more about that. All right, let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about what's going on in the Nasdaq right now, and that is David Garrity of Laidlaw and also BT Block. David, thanks for joining. How concerned are you that now we're, you know, in the last three sessions or so, we're at around about an eight to nine percent drop for the Nasdaq?
2: Yeah, Vani, in terms of looking at uh, the price action that we had going into the end of August, you certainly had a asymptotic move to the upside by the likes of Apple as well as Tesla going into their splits. Um, certainly, you've had the news about the options market activity that have been taking place. So to have the market back now you know, 9% below its highs, um, NASDAQ tends to be more volatile. We don't think we necessarily are going to be finished with this correction as of today it may have a little bit further to run.
1: Are there stocks that you would pile into right now, though, even if there is a little more to run? Or would you wait for another while? Or or are are we getting to the stage where we'll see stocks correctly valued as opposed to undervalued?
2: I think that your last point here in terms of trying to get to a more correct valuation is probably the the most appropriate point. Um, We have to take into account uh, the fact that The prospects for further fiscal stimulus, at least prior to the election in November, uh, are most likely being put squarely on the sidelines. So, there is nothing that's going to be coming over the hill, so to speak, in terms of further spending uh, to support the u s economy and certainly that has knock on effects for the global economy um, and at the same time, absent that support, the drumbeat of bad news in terms of layoffs, whether it's coming from airlines banks or other places, is probably going to become more significant and you know in the meanwhile, we always have the news about you know the second wave, if you will, of coronavirus infection so you know on balance um People were quite ebullient going into the late summer, and unfortunately, fall brings, along with the cooler temperatures, perhaps a cooler perspective.
1: David, the options activity that you were talking about, you know, related to SoftBank and so on, how serious is that for trading going forward? Will it have any impact?
2: Um, I mean, to the extent we don't know necessarily what, were, what was the uh, maturity or what was the term uh, on the options contracts that were involved. To the extent that they appear to have been fairly significant relative to the ramp up in the shares, um, we would think that the options contracts themselves were perhaps relatively short term, in which case, um, you know, the impact of those contracts uh, should wash out fairly frequently. Nevertheless, it probably leaves us in a position here where the month of September um, is going to be, obviously, or it started volatile, but is likely to continue to be so, and that more it's going to be the earnings season that we start to get announced in October for the third quarter of 2020 uh, that will serve to, to stabilize things and give a better prospect in terms of where are the valuations reasonable in terms of the prices in the market relative to the earnings prospects of the companies involved.
1: So David, perfect news for you. We just got the word that Apple is going to hold an online event September 15th, where the company is expected to unveil its latest iPhones and Apple Watches. It's going to start at 10 a.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern. What should we look forward to from Apple in this round of innovation?
2: Well, certainly the biggest thing to look for from Apple is going to be the latest edition of the iPhone, which is going to be engineered to be using the 5G wireless spectrum, and in this regard, uh, considered to be possibly a transformative product for Apple. Certainly, it's been an element that's been responsible for the run-up in the shares um, probably over the last three to four months, maybe if you want to go back further and look at the March 2020 lows. So clearly, a lot of the expectations there are already baked into the market, Um, nice to know that we're going to be getting something to look forward to on the 15th of September Um, and we'll be looking for what the surprises are on the margin but the 5G iPhone is the big ticket.
1: So why put so much emphasis on 5G when really you know there's a lot of the country that is not going to be able to benefit from that I mean we're really only talking about the major cities and not even all of those major cities that have 5G right now
2: no it's true, um, but if we look at what the services are that can be facilitated as a result of having the speed that five g will offer, it can be a substantially different user experience um, and you have to look at you know what's going to be capable in terms of providing more information by way of video at faster rates and Arguably, you may say it's the cities that have most of the coverage right now, but um, absent COVID, uh, that's where most of the people or most of the cell phone users tend to be. Um, So, you know, looking at 5G, we're not so far out from the deployment of 5G networks that this is something, of a product that comes out before there's really a market for it. I think the timing on Apple's part is actually quite good.
1: Uh, yeah, indeed, because uh, the, there'll be nothing like wanting a little bit of luxury or a little something new to pep us up if coronavirus continues, which, as we know, it will. David Garrity, thank you so much for all of your intelligence today. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist at Laid Law and & Company and also BT Block, which is a, a blockchain and uh, c- cryptocurrency company. It is time now for Bloomberg Opinion. And for that, we're going to actually cross the pond. Sterling has been trading today just a, a little bit on the idea that Boris Johnson might be taking Brexit in a crazy direction. And that is also the title of Therese Raphael's latest Bloomberg Opinion piece. So we welcome Therese right now. And once again, Sterling at 130.32, weaker by 1%. What crazy direction are we talking about, Therese? Well, there, there, there's crazy and crazier, let's put it that way. So,
3: Johnson's ministers, his cabinet and, and uh, number 10 Downing Street have been putting out the word for some time now that he sees no deal with the EU, no trade deal that sets out the future negotiations as actually preferable to compromising on the outstanding issues, including the one of state aid. Now, that carries all sorts of implications because it means virtual trade with the EU and the World Trade Organization terms, which will carry, of course. Economic costs as we get trade friction. The crazier part is the uh, acknowledgement, including by a government minister in the House of Commons today, that uh, the government plans to break its treaty obligation. This is the treaty it signed with the EU uh, only months ago, uh, and the part of the treaty on the Northern Irish uh, Protocol that was uh, intended to ensure that there's an open border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And the government is now saying it wants to uh, pass legislation that would override parts of that treaty. So all of this has obviously caused much consternation uh, from the EU side, though there is at least you know, some hope that it's uh, the kind of brinkmanship we've seen in the past that tends to precede the 11th hour negotiations, that tends
1: to precede some kind of a deal. So, essentially, Boris Johnson might be trying to rewrite the Brexit divorce deal that took so long to get signed last year with the European Union, and he might also be breaking international law if all this goes ahead. Why are markets not taking this seriously? Seriously enough, in the sense that starting is a little weaker, but nothing is falling off a cliff. I mean, I think
3: for a couple of reasons. One, there is a a sense that that, uh, EU negotiations always... Uh, go through this sort of stage of falling apart before they come together at the last minute. And that's what we saw last year where Boris Johnson met with uh, the former Irish Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and did a deal um, on Northern Ireland that that sealed um, uh, or paved the way for the rest of the withdrawal agreement. So there's some sense that this may be uh, posturing. But, it, you know, there's also an understanding that they've now had enough, uh, you know, a significant time to prepare for a no-deal exit. Uh, both sides have been doing so. Any deal that they would uh, conclude now is not going to be uh, substantially better in terms of uh, trade terms than, than leaving without a deal. They will get you know, perhaps some relief on tariffs and quotas, but we're not talking the kind of comprehensive free trade agreement covering all uh, areas of policy that was hoped for in the beginning, and that's kind of priced in now. These talks are going to go on and on and on, regardless of whether some kind of deal is reached at the end of the year.
1: Not only that, but it sounds like there are two options for no deal. One is just no deal, but fairly friendly terms. And the other is what seems to be happening. And that's no deal in pretty acrimonious terms.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, from the point of if you're going to look at it from 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 the market perspective, you can have a no deal on acrimonious terms, but how long can you really stay on those terms? Britain and the EU are each other's uh, major trading partner. They cooperate on a whole range of issues, from migration to counterterrorism, security, policing, um, all sorts of uh, you know all sorts of other issues. And really, they have to find some way through this. So you know, whatever the mood music is now, uh, we can expect that at some point cooler heads. Prevail, and some kind of uh, return to an negotiating table would be expected, and I, I think that's that's sort of a reasonable expectation. Uh, when that happens, and on what terms,
1: is, is really hard to say. Therese I read Morris Johnson's statement out of 10 Downing Street yesterday, and it appeared to be you know very optimistic. And look, if this all happens, it'll end up that we're you know essentially trading with Europe like Australia trades with Europe, for example. But we'll also have completely you know sovereign power and control over what we decide to do and so on. Is the tone too optimistic for what would happen in a scenario where Britain was on the outside, like, say, Australia?
3: Well, I mean, he might as well well have said, you know, we'll trade with Europe the way, um, as someone said, Outer Mongolia will trade with Europe because Australia doesn't have uh, a trade deal. And, And so that is just kind of a soft way of saying, um, you know we will be completely on the outside I think Johnson does want some kind of a deal it's clearly in Britain's economic interest to have preferential trade terms politically it will get very very tricky with uh, the, the uh, momentum for independence in Scotland if there's no deal at all so I think his preference would be to have a deal at the same time the issue that's dividing them now which is you know state aid the the ability of governments to give subsidies tax relief, other incentives to businesses, is pretty existential for this government, because it's trying to reorient the British economy after Brexit uh, to make it amenable to global trade deals, to level up, as as Johnson likes to put it, parts of the economy that have fallen behind, to try to uh, improve Britain's lagging productivity. And the only way, in their view, they can do that is to have a free reign uh, when it comes to using taxpayer money to help give a boost to investment in R&D, skills training in certain industries. And they're worried that the EU is going to try to uh, prevent that because the EU will fear uh, a distorted of competition. So both sides actually have a lot at stake here. The EU is trying to preserve the integrity of the single market and prevent uh, Britain from undercutting EU industries, and Britain wants to reap the benefits of Brexit and have complete uh, freedom over its rules. And, uh, you know, there is a a deal to be done, no doubt, but it will require political will on both sides. And the danger is that, you know, they've really, um, uh, from the UK side, they've sort of painted themselves into a corner, because if you... you know, if, they're, if they're going to go ahead with a plan to you know, literally abrogate an international treaty and then say they refuse to compromise at all on state aid, it's really hard to say how, see how the EU can move closer toward the UK position and save a deal. And again, you know, we're talking about a very tight time frame. Johnson's put a deadline of October 15th on it.
1: And then on the Northern Ireland protocol, Therese, just very briefly, because we're pretty out of time, a hard border has been obviously ruled out, but there would be some kind of border now. Is that what that, what this means?
3: Well, not necessarily. The articles that John was talking about um, regards uh, the impact of uh, of state aid for trade that affects Northern Ireland and the EU. But I think abrogating the treaty does open reopen questions about the border. So, you
1: know, one might follow the other. It's not for certain, but it 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 certainly is an issue. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thank you so much for explaining all of this to us. uh, As John Alter says, the empire strikes back. And in other news, SL Green Realty preparing to cut the ribbon next week on one Vanderbilt, a $13 billion office tower above Grand Central Terminal in New York. It's 20 years in the making, but will it be rented? Now to the story of the day, really. It's the tale of the two electric vehicle makers. Neither of them really profitable, but one of them is actually turning out vehicles, and that's Tesla. Tesla down 17% right now, but Nikola... That's trying to make the badger in big numbers. Well, it's higher because GM has taken a $2 billion, billion, that's with a B, dollar stake in Nikola. Let's bring in someone to tell us a lot more about this. David Welsh is Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. David, just the initial questions I want to ask surround the differences between Nikola and Tesla. Is it a false comparison? <laughs>
4: Look, right now it is. You have a company that's worth almost $19 billion, but they haven't sold anything. Uh, You do have uh, a couple of CEOs for these companies that like to get on Twitter and and be very active there and be very quotable and colorful. But after that, the the comparison kind of falls short. That's not to say Nikola doesn't have some technology, um, but they don't even have a a model for sale yet. They're still in the process of developing those and getting plants up and running. And really, this deal sort of underscores an even bigger difference between Tesla from its early days and uh, Nikola today. And that is, with this partnership with GM, they're actually using GM's electric vehicle battery and GM's fuel cell system, which is generally developed with Honda. Tesla developed its own battery pack that everybody else in the industry said couldn't work, wouldn't have great quality, but it did work and it did have pretty good quality. So they didn't need to use anybody else's technology. Early on, Daimler of Germany and Toyota Motor Corp had invested in Tesla, but they were still using Tesla's own battery pack. This is different here. So it does make a lot of people uh, question what does Nikola bring to GM in terms of technology, or is it basically a brand name, a pickup truck concept, and some sales down the line? And that that appears to be what it is.
1: That's pretty insane. So the story is General Motors is giving $2 billion to Nikola. It gets a $2 billion equity stake for that and 11% ownership of Nikola. Nikola says it sees saving over $4 billion in battery and powertrain costs. And GM says it's going to receive in excess of $4 billion of benefits. Where did it get that $4 billion figure?
4: So first of all, GM's not even putting cash in. The $2 billion uh stake that they're getting is simply by giving Nikola their battery and their fuel cell technology. So it's a no-cash deal for GM, and therefore much less risk. The savings everybody's talking about, uh, and we'll, we'll take a brief walk back here to my days of covering M&A deals, it's sort of assuming a certain amount of sales, and here's how much we will save on battery development and fuel cell development and building factories. Nikola doesn't have to build a, an electric vehicle factory now, they will use GMs. It's really by joining forces, but it's based on a bunch of assumptions that uh, you know, X number of vehicles will sell and would have cost each company a certain amount of money had they gone on their own, but now they're joining forces and combining things and they'll get all kinds of savings. Uh, you know, I'm not sure we'll see $4 billion peeled out of General Motors' uh, costs and down to the bottom line, but it's sort of a future projection here. So I, I, I've always looked at these a little bit suspiciously, but we'll see what happens in the future.
1: So what does this say about GM that it's looking for a new concept like that? Why does it need it now? And, and, and when might the Badger sort of be coming off GM assembly lines or even, you know, Nikola Tesla line, Nikola lines? They're saying
4: uh, the second half of 2022. So at least six months after GM's Hummer pickup truck comes out. So if, if Nikola's vehicles sell, GM gets two things out of it. They will be selling a basic work pickup truck, very different from the Hummer pickup truck that GM is planning to sell. That's more of a lifestyle vehicle, almost kind of a luxury vehicle. Hummer's not the kind of brand for people, for contractors who are, uh, you know, loading it up with pipes and two-by-fours and that sort of thing. This is the kind of truck that tows a boat or is just driven around town. So the Nikola truck would give GM a crack at selling something more of a regular work truck. And then uh, on the fuel cell side of things, what GM gets, because so it's much more concrete, is the Class 7 and 8 pickup truck. These are the big over-the-road rigs for hauling freight. GM doesn't really have anything there, and this is their way to get into that game. And, and fuel cells are a pretty good way to power those trucks, because batteries weigh so much, you're, you're just cutting away how much freight you can haul if you did it with electric power, and now you're doing it with hydrogen power. So GM gets into a new market if it works. If it doesn't work, GM has not put any cash in, uh, and, and And so it, you know there's not a lot of monetary risk for GM here.
1: So Nikola is up thirty seven percent. you might understand that. but is it uh, understandable that Tesla is down fourteen percent today?
4: Uh, yeah in, in in a big way it is because a lot of investors thought Tesla was going to be welcomed into the s p 500, and that means you would have seen a lot of passive money through s p 500 uh, and s p index funds coming in. Uh, as opposed to you know, the you know heavy cohort of retail investors and some institutions that are in Tesla, that didn't happen. and And it has two implications. One is just you know the pure fact that you're not going to have all this uh, potential new money coming into the stock. And two, there is some talk out there that uh, Tesla's earnings, while they have been profitable mm-hmm. several quarters in a row now, it's not a great quality of earnings. They, they often lose money on the core vehicle business and yep. they make enough money. Selling regulatory electric vehicle credits to the gas-burning mm-hmm. car manufacturers, uh, and, and that overshadows the losses, and they end up turning a profit.
1: David, we have to leave it there, and- but thank you so much for explaining all of that to us. Much, much appreciated. David Welsh, there in Detroit.